Are we better off trying to forget painful and potentially divisive memories? Do we get along better when we avoid opening old wounds? Why is it often so difficult to work through the past, and what are the potential benefits of doing so? These are the questions we explore in Realms of Memory. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian, and in today's episode, we turn to the memory of the great exodus from China. With the communist victory in China in 1949, nearly one million Civil War refugees flooded into Taiwan, one of the largest outmigrations of Chinese people in the modern era. What role has memory played in the struggle of these mainlanders to come to terms with being uprooted from their ancestral home in China? How has the memory work of first and later generations of mainlanders helped them find a new home in Taiwan? How does this memory work help us to understand the relationship between trauma and memory in new ways? To explore these questions, I'm very pleased to welcome Dominic Mengshuan Yang, Associate Professor of History at the University of Missouri, to discuss his book, The Great Exodus from China, Trauma, Memory, and Identity in Modern Taiwan. Dominic, thank you for taking part in this episode of Realms of Memory. Yeah, thank you very much, Rick, uh, for the invitation. So we started before this introduction talking about uh, how little that this this great exodus has been studied. And given the magnitude, it really hasn't been until about the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, thank you for that question, Rick. I mean, it is a very important question, uh, a question that I discuss in detail uh, in chapter one of the book. Um, just to put it very simply, it you know, it is a kind of topic that, you know, this is not to say that people don't ever mention it, right? If you go and read any books on modern Taiwan or the Chinese Civil War, there is always going to be that mentioning that, hey, by the way, one to two million people from different parts of China uh, went to Taiwan with Chiang Kai-shek's regime. Um, and that, that will be it. The biggest field scholarship that is related to this topic is the discussion of Chinese Civil War right, or the Chinese Revolution. So it could be discussed as part of the Chinese Civil War, part of the Chinese Revolution, but, but too bad. Um, um, East Asian studies specialists are much more interested in, you know, when they talk about 1949, they are more interested in the Chinese Revolution. Uh, they are more interested in people who remain in China, and they're more interested in what happened to China, you know, in, in China, you know, in, you know, in Mao's China to 1945. And the, the idea of the Chinese Civil War itself as a sort of a competition of the of the revolutionary regimes or or visions between these two uh, self-proclaimed revolution party in in modern Chinese history at being the communists and the Chinese nationalists, right? So, I mean, that's always been part of the reason. I mean, the the dominating question in that scholarship, I mean, the scholarship of the Chinese Civil War, I mean, has always been, you know, why did uh, the Chinese communists won despite all its disadvantages. Why did the nationalists lose the civil war uh, despite the support of the United States, despite gaining all the prestige uh, following World War II defeating Japan? So the story, the human dimension of the Great Exodus really 
has been largely ignored until recently. But if you look at it, mm-hmm. it seems to be that the one of the main arguments of your book, the main argument, is that we can come to appreciate the relationship between trauma and memory in new ways. Mm-hmm. And that that understanding up until now has been has been somewhat limited. So I was hoping that you could you could comment on that. The theories that I, you know, that I that I read, which mostly came out of um, this the study of, you know, for example, the Holocaust, the Vietnam War, and of course there's a fair bit on the psycho that I talked about is psychoanalytic tradition, uh, psychoanalytic school that comes out of the turn of the 20th century, uh, Freudian uh, theory uh, that I, f- I find all of this to be extremely, uh, you know, not very satisfying in terms of, you know, because there you can see that there's a clear disjuncture. For example, in the sort of, traditional sort of yeah, traditional yeah the, the sort of more of a european like you know trauma theory when it when it comes to traumatic memories right it's all there's this idea that you know the the people with memory loss and they're the one who who traumatized right or if they actually didn't lose the memory um they have trouble dealing with it it was very hard so going back on it will be i mean this memory will become a problem right and like I said, I, I am not saying that the the mainlanders, the, this group of people that I said were displaced, they some of them really also show that kind of characteristic. But I think overall, right, there there are these other dynamics that are that are much more important. For example, for a Chinese person coming out of China living in the the first, you know, you know, first half of the 20th century, which is what they consider is pretty traumatic is actually not the loss of memory or the inability to deal with certain memory, but this just the, the condition of being prevented from going home and not being able to like, you know, because, you know, in the, in the, the Western think, even more of this Western thinking that because the idea of a, a loss of memory or the inability to deal with certain memory in the past that was considered traumatic, you know, because it sort of in, it, it, it encroaches upon an individual's ability to remember the past, right? To become the so, so you're not a wholesome subject every, anymore. You're not in control of your faculty, of your faculty to remember because your remembrance in your past makes you the person you are right now, right? But I would argue that, you know, in the sort of, at least in the Chinese cultural context back then, and this was very strong back then, and to a, to a certain degree, you can still observe this in China today and to a certain degree in Taiwan, that the, and although not so much anymore, the idea that, you know, that one has to have some kind of connection with one's native place, and especially like before 1949 that you, you you know when you die like you can go work someplace else right but when you die there you know there has to be this sort of repatriation of your remains back to that your home village to be buried with your parents and your ancestor and your lineage right that was there and the inability to do so or the perceive in because that's not always realized right for the 
for example, the overseas Chinese, that's what they do, like in in North America, in Southeast Asia. But but this kind of, you know, this kind of the 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 patri- repatriation of remain was not possible under a lot of circumstances, right? But the idea that you can do that, but then if you know, it happens that you know that you can't do that. There is going to be a permanent severance of that relationship, and I argue that that's that's quite traumatizing because that means that you are not the person that you will be. It's kind of like very similar to like your your the you, now you're not a whole person anymore in the in the Western sense, and this is where memory comes in differently. Right. People do remember and they're trying to remember. They're trying to, and memory becomes a therapeutic thing. So the question is no longer where, whether these people can remember or cannot remember, or if they can remember, they can, if they can deal with this remembrance, which has been the central problematic of traumatic memory in a lot of Western scholarship. But the, 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 the central problematic is not this. The central problem then becomes what sort of memory they try to remember and what function does it serve? What therapeutic function does it serve? And what's the implication, especially the ethical implication of, 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 of this kind of memory politics? The memory of the Great Exodus was not the first memory to be recalled by mainlanders who arrived in Taiwan in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Dominic explains that for political reasons, these memories didn't surface publicly until the late 1980s. The title, the main title of the book is The Great Exodus from China, right? And that that particular experience, that it's a refugee experience. <laughs> it's about this one million people escaping to Taiwan, like getting on the last boat, the last plane. It's, it's about seeing their loved ones, you know, getting lost in, in the separation and getting to Taiwan knowing that, you know, don't know, you know, whether the re- remainder of their family that were dispersed during the, the, during the entire you know, escape route, whether they're alive or not, it was extremely traumatic, right? But it was only, you know, a part of their lives in the past. And why, I mean, and I made the point in the book that before Taiwan democratized, these stories of 1949 escape uh, didn't come out in the public of course, you know, there are, they're in the, of course, there are in, they were in the private conversations, right? If the, the family, it's like, it, it is said that every mainlander has family in Taiwan has a refugee story, right? That they pass down through the generation, but outwardly you can't talk about. And like I said, this is about the selectivity of memory, right? And and of course, the most important reason was, you know, before democratization was political suppression. Um, because for the nationalist regime, um, if you talked about 1949 as a refugee movement, as a defeat, then it's no good for the regime because, you know, anyone who has an understanding of nationalist 
you know, nationalist uh, discourse on Taiwan before democratization was that they were going to fight back to China and defeat the communists and, and, and take back, you know, what they're, and, and, and so it's a, this sort of irredentist triumphal regime that predicts the final victory, right? So to talk about um, the defeat and the monument, because 1949 was a huge embarrassment for the national regime. It was a monumental failure to talk about the suffering that comes from that failure. It was a, it was politically a no-no <laughs> for the national. And this, of course, is one of the reasons why you know this human migration is never talked about in a serious in in any way. Uh, you know, there was not a possibility that's going to come out of Taiwan because no one is talking about it, like outwardly at least. If the public memory of the Great Exodus was largely suppressed until the late 1980s, memory still played a central role in helping exiled mainlanders cope with their new life in Taiwan. Memory, Dominic explains, is always situational. We draw from past experiences that are most relevant to our current needs and aspirations. During the first decade in Taiwan, the memories that were most pertinent to mainlanders were those of wartime sojourning during the resistance war against Japan. When they felt that they could still go home, they produced one kind of memory, and that memory was their refugee experience in China during the Japanese invasion, because they can draw a lot of parallels, right? And that was a traumatic that that was also a traumatic memory, but they used that traumatic memory to to sort of persuade themselves that we were like that before. You know, we were in Chongqing with the Chiang Kai-shek government, or or in other marginal places in China, in the Southwest or in the South, and some of them even went out of the country, right? It's kind of like we're in Taiwan right now, like in Taipei, like in this place, and we don't know the locals because they, they either speak Japanese or these Chinese dialects that we don't understand, but it's not important. Like when we're in Yunnan province, we don't learn to speak the local dialect, the, the, the language of the ethnic minorities either. We don't care about them because we're going back. By the 1960s, when it became painfully clear that the return to China might never happen, mainlanders turned to memories of their native places to cope with the trauma of the diminishing hope of return. From the 1960s to the 1980s, we see the proliferation of native place associations through magazines and newsletters that featured everything from histories and songs to poems and recipes. These associations were driven by a common desire to preserve as much as their members could remember about their ancestral homelands. Rather than dismissing these projects as pure cultural nostalgia, Dominic stresses that these efforts were part of a process of localization or putting down roots in Taiwan. By finding shared ties with others and devoting significant resources to these ties, Mainlanders were investing in Taiwan in very concrete ways as their new home. In some cases, the desire to build ancestral ties led to some very creative reimaginings of the past. There is this idea, still in Taiwan today, um, even their children and grandchildren who 
who are born in Taiwan, they will say, well, my grandparents, they're also all their life, they don't think about China, right? Because that's where they're born. That's when they were displaced to Taiwan. So naturally, I mean, they will want unification, <laughs> you know, throughout their life until they die. I mean, that's the, uh, they will never change. Um, I, I kind of challenge that idea. And that idea is not that hard to understand, isn't it? Like if you spend over a decade or two in a place, and there will be some part of you that's that's actually connected to this place, right? You you know you live here for decades, and you have a new fam. A lot of them had new, you know, they left their original family in China, um, and it, when it was perceived that they could never. Might not never go back in their lifetime. I mean, you start a new family in China, right? So naturally, there is going to be some attachment that you actually, you know, develop in this. And and this is one of the things, you know, that I discover about the native place association. Some of the not all of the native place association develop this kind of project, but. Some of them did, and in a very sort of curious and ostensible way, they were just like, you know, for example, um, the uh, the Shanxi province community that I talked about in the book, they um, they have this, you know, person kind of like an armchair historian slash anthropologist. I mean, he. He his name is Xu Bingyan. I mean, he was just a low-level government official in the education bureau, um, and his job is basically to um, he moves around on the island, really going to the countryside and oversee the operation of public schools on a daily basis, right? So he could be in one county and next day in the other county. So he's like, you know, and he's, so he went into a lot of places, like the rural Taiwanese places where a lot of mainlanders living in, in cities back in those days would go into. And he just happened to discover, I mean, this discovery was made in 1976. He's discovery as you know a uh, 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 archaeologist slash anthropologist slash you know amateur historian and he made this claim that you know the the province where he came from right the shanxi province there were Shan, shanxi migrants that came to taiwan previously uh, in history um, they came as part of the uh, um, the military migration that came over with this uh, historical figure called Guo Da. He's pretty famous in, in in Chinese and Taiwanese history. Long story short, he was actually a, a pirate that turned into a Ming loyalist. Uh, his Chinese name was Zheng Chenggong, <laughs> and so um, there were a contingent of his. Soldier fought under this general from Shanxi province, and it was presumed that um, the soldiers that came over with him from the mainland were also Shanxi, uh, you know, soldiers from Shanxi province. Although we do have some documentary evidence, but very, very slim. There's really, we, we don't really know. 
But then, you know, and that, the question then becomes: Why would this this mainlander person, a low-level official, went into a Taiwanese countryside and went, went into a, a obviously a Hokkien speaking? Local Taiwanese community. It was deep in the, you know, like not deep in the mountains, but beside the mountains in the middle of nowhere in central Taiwan, and says that this community of people, because the the name of the village was called Shanxi Village. It's the same name, the same character with his home province. It's not only the pronunciation. Is the same as the, the the same two characters Shanxi, so it is called the Shanxi village, and so he then he did some kind of work looking at tombstones <laughs> in that region, and then he then he determined that uh, these uh, people that are about three or four hundred peasants living in that village, and they they farm the land. In that particular area, they he determined he made a determination that through his archaeological fieldwork, that these people were the descendants of that particular contingent of Shanxi soldiers who came over with Koxinga maybe two hundred years ago or something, <laughs> and then uh, and they managed to. And and so that that site became from 1977 to right around 1982, I think, became a site of pilgrimage of Shanxi provincials living in different parts of Taiwan. Like these are provincial that belongs to the Shanxi Native Police Associations, and there are other instances like you know like the uh, the Hunan people from Hunan were remembered in this group of soldiers who. Who fought who, who defended Taiwan against the French during the Sino-French War, and they're like some 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 group from Hebei were like fighting this this, this very similar kind of connections of of, of Hebei people who who had moved to Taiwan before that. So of course all of these is like when you look at this is all fictive, right? But why were people like group of mainland people? Uh, mainlanders, um, and, and they're separated by different provinces because their their subnational identity is still their provincial identity. Why why were they doing this? And my interpretation is that there starts to be some kind of I call it localization of the roots, and there was also a movement. Among them, the first generation mainlanders at the time, in right around the same time when they're trying to find, you know, their predecessors in, in Taiwan that had moved to Taiwan before that, before them, um, it's called the, the the movement to produce genealogy. Like, you know, if you know anything about Chinese culture, like genealogy is the kind of thing that you you need to, you need to establish your line, right? Like, you know, a lot a lot of the, the the lines that got pushed back too far, you know, you know, like the six or seven generation, or even to the the Han Dynasty, those are really fictive ones. <laughs> but the act of producing this genealogy, the genealogy of they being the first generation 
from their province or fr and from their county who moved to Taiwan and established a new branch of family, right? That, that movement, which I talked about a little bit in the book, also coincide with this, this movement of local root changing, the root seeking uh, in, in Taiwanese villages, right? By the time you get to the 1980s, larger political changes brought this era of native place associations to an end. It was no longer necessary to create fictive genealogies because under Deng Xiaoping, China opened and it became possible to return home. In Taiwan, Cheng Qingkuo, who assumed leadership of the ruling Nationalist Party after the death of his father, Chiang Kai-shek, moved in the direction of democratization and ended the 40-year ban on travel to China. Despite this decision, Dominic explains that the journey home was still extremely difficult. But even more difficult than the journey home was the trauma returnees experienced when they finally made it back to their native places. You have to go through all these obstacles that were, <laughs> I guess you can't go directly. You got to register through the Red Cross because the ROC government in theory still did not recognize the PRC government for the ROC government. PRC government didn't actually exist. <laughs> it's, it's all these like legal constitutional barriers that is not negotiable for the national strategy. Right? And they're kind of like, and, and so then if you're regular people, you need to be put through all of these and, and, and they're used to it. Right. But it's kind of like after you, you know, and a lot of people got scammed in Hong Kong because, you know, there are people making this, you know, doing this kind of thing for, for money, uh, taking people to China, you know, in Hong Kong, taking you back to your villages because back in the days, you know, 19, late 1980s China, early 1990s China, um, it was not a pleasant place to visit, right? It was still, you know, they're trying, they're, they're, they're developing, but it's kind of like, if you go to some of the, their villages, I mean, rural villages, I mean, some of the rural villages in China today are still pretty, pretty bad and pretty depressed. And this is not to mention that, you know, this is the beginning of the, the, the reform and opening. And so the returnees, once they, so it's, it's enough, really enough hard for them to, to enter China. And especially for those, you know, uh, disadvantaged old soldiers at the bottom of the uh, the social order really come up with the money, right? And then if you have, and you really got to have a lot of money because when you return, you want to be able to give money to your to your mainland relatives, and and of course later on this becomes something that is really not good in terms of reestablishing that relationship, and and also just all all kinds of things, you know. You know, because I mean, you're you know, mentioning time. name, changing your name, tattoos, uh, yes. all these complex family ties. That, that part I thought was fascinating. You just, yeah, you, it's not just getting a ticket and get, going on a plane and reuniting. Yeah. The family thing is the most difficult one. If you're talking about like you've had a tattoo that says kill, kill Chairman Mao, <laughs> I mean, that's okay because that tattoo can be removed, right? You just have to be really, really patient. You know, you're waiting in line for, for, for laser removal and you want to borrow money from your friends. You, and a lot of them, you know, those are in the government. A lot of them are, 
were in the government and in the military still serving, they have to quit their jobs in order for them to return. You know, until the law changes in in the mid 1990s. Before that, if you want to go, you can't be, you know, serving in the military uh, and and in the government in any capacity. So they have to take an early retirement, which is the financial sacrifice. But major a lot sacrifice, of these, right? Yeah. So major, you the, that that guilt and that 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 need to go back. Uh, yeah. Was, Tremendous. It was very, it was very strong, and but then all of these obstacles, you know, can be deal with. It's you know, it's traumatizing, but it can be. But there is one obstacle. There are particularly traumatizing, like double families, because a lot of them, when they remarry in Taiwan, they lie about the status of their family in China. Because if you said to a Taiwanese girl, "Hey, I still have, I still have wife in China," you're like, "Maybe in three years, I'm gonna return to China and then see, see you, adios." I mean, do you think this Taiwan girl will marry you, have children with you? <laughs> no. So, so there are a lot, lot of families of, that must end, end up getting destroyed at that point in time. There's there's a reckoning. Yeah, there's the uh, the mainland husband just you know in order to return, right? They have to say officially on the document. They have to. They, and this have to not only be reported to the government. They have to really come clean to their Taiwan family, saying that you know what, I lied to you, honey. <laughs> Sorry, I lied to you. Um, my wife, former wife, which I tell you was died in the Chinese Civil War. You know what? He's still alive, and I still have two children there. And now I'm going to see them. So, what would your Taiwanese family, your wife, and your children hear? What What would they feel? Hmm. I mean, I would, and this is extremely common back then. So, and, so, and once you go through all of that effort, uh, exhaust your resources, deal with all the family complications, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and then you get there. And uh, what, what's what's the, the the final the final shock that greets people? Well, lots of things, but you know, in in short, is that you found out that your home, your native place, your village, the place you grew up is no longer that place that you remember. It's completely different. And it's extremely alienating and extremely, like I said, disorienting and traumatic because this is the place you want to return and the the people that you want to see in that place, right? For the longest time. And yet what greeted you is like you become... You have this sense, and that sense is extremely strong, and it's across the board for for most, I would say 90, 99% of the returnees from Taiwan felt this way. Like, I no longer feel at home in a place that I thought was my home and my belonging, right? Like I said, there are lots of things, like you can't get used to the way in which you your family member, like your sibling, like when they return, a lot of the the your, your parents' generation already die, right? And what you have is your siblings or your cousins, and they are speaking in language that you don't really understand. Like they're talking about children now, they're talking about <laughs> like the proletariat, like all these like giant, you know, the the the, the daily language thing, and the practice. Because a lot of the returnees from Taiwan, one of the things they wanted to do is to seek that ancestral grave, that and they they want to pay their respect. They brought in a lot of capital to be able to, like you know, a lot of people like just they 
that's all they want to do. But then you're told that all the graves were, a lot of them were destroyed in a cultural revolution. They were dug up. And then it was actually the reaction of your Chinese family. A lot of them were like, well, like we don't do those things anymore. This is, like Chairman Mao said, this is all like, you know, superstition, right? We're now a new China. This is, uh, we will do this for you because you are, you know, my dear cousin who returned from Taiwan. Yeah, we'll do this for you, but but we don't, we ourselves don't do this anymore. And when, and the, of course, like I am not trying to basically say that the mainland side was not traumatized. They were also traumatized because just by the by the by the fact that you had family member who went to Taiwan, uh, just by the fact they it doesn't matter. Like he was kidnapped by the Nationalist Army. Yeah, whatever. But he's there with Chiang Kai-shek, right? You're one of the nationalist <laughs> group of people, right? And if you're that, then during the Cultural Revolution, um, you are you're going to have a pretty hard time. You're going to get struggle again. You're the one who gets struggle against in the village, right? Uh, and during the famine, on the Great Leaf Four, you are the ones that you're the family, you're the household that get the last bit of food to eat. There's no food to eat for for you. Then there's no food to eat. Well, too, too bad, but you're counter revolutionaries, right? And so for 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 these people to receive the returnees in this way, that hey, you know what? Now, hey, you return from Taiwan, you have a lot of money. Now is the time for you to sort of pay me back that you know all the, the suffering that as a compensation. Right. And then, you know, you, you want to do the ancestral gray thing. That's good. <laughs> I can, I can, I can arrange it for you. You give me money, but, but what about me? The person who are still, alive? I mean, it is, you know, under the circumstances, it's really, it's really easy to understand why this sort of, uh, you know, coming face to face with the real homeland was so, it was so traumatic for the, for, the, for the exile. The trauma of the return home to China was then compounded when mainlander exiles came back to a new Taiwan that was being transformed by the process of democratization. At the very moment mainlander exiles were ready to fully embrace Taiwan as their new home, Taiwan was undergoing radical changes making it a much less welcoming place. First of all, there is this realization, first of all, that, okay, now, like me and my children, we are, we are, we now belong to Taiwan, to this side, right? It is still called Republic of China. And maybe in the future, there will be some kind of unification with China, but, but not now, maybe not in my lifetime, because two sides are, too, are so different. Right. But then they quickly found out they have to fight for their place in Taiwan. Because increasingly, with the way in which the politics goes, the mainlander as an entire group was soon perceived as, you know, part of the because 
if you democratize, right, and there's going to be a lot of criticism, at, at least at the beginning, towards the old nationalist regime, you know, that authoritarian regime that suppressed the people. And then, yeah, you are the group of people who came over that regime that staffed its civil service and the army, like the mainlanders in comparison to local Taiwanese, you are a minority, but you are in a position of power for the longest time. You guys are dominant as a group in that nationalist party. I mean, so you can sort of imagine the, the kind of thing that goes on, you know, in a following, right? It was in reaction to this backlash toward the mainlander population by native-born Taiwanese that we see the explosion of memories of the Great Exodus. These are stories not told by mainlander exiles themselves, but by their Taiwan-born children and grandchildren who use these memories to stake their own claim to Taiwan as their home. But even before this, Dominic explains, the children of mainlander exiles were already busy with their own memory work during the 1970s and 1980s, recalling the people and places that were meaningful in their own lives. So the first generation were still, you know, their, their way of localization. Or, or Taiwanization, or maybe I should call, I should not call it Taiwanization because it was actually not Taiwanization. It would just localize themselves, right? That's, so that's the first generation. It is through their native place network and through these temporal and, and root-seeking projects. But their children who were the who were the first generation born in Taiwan by the 1970s, late 1970s, a lot of them already, you know, came out and start, you know, writing novels and start being part of the, the, you know, the producers of memories. And these people move into, you know, the want to focus on the old soldiers, you know, because they're they're mar- this marginalized group of people who are also mainlanders, so you sympathize with them, and also the military family village. These are the places that they a lot of them grew up in, right, and. And in the late 1970s and early 80s, the nationalist government came up with a scheme of urban renewal. And this is all throughout the island. They are going to knock down these old neighborhoods that were built. Some of them were not built in the 50s, right? They were like just old Japanese facilities and dormitories. Uh, and they're older. They're, so so they're, by the time you get there, it's already very old. But even the new ones that were built in the 1950s were really badly built and flimsy. And that's because, you know, 1950s, the idea was that they were going to go back to China. <laughs> so these lands were, these lands are on valuable prime land in the cities right now, because back then the city was very small. And the military would just take over different sections on the fringe of the cities and build their build the these called the military family or military dependence village to house their 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 family, right? But now, and there are like you know up to like nine hundred of these all across the island, and now these villages they're on some of them fairly large, and they're 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 government land. Um, and the residents, they do not own the property. They do not own the rights. So, so there's a way of like urban renewal to knock down these villages and build high-rise apartments. And then not only you can sell these apartments to, um, to the local Taiwan residents, but also 
the original residents can get can get a unit or two as well. But because of these schemes, um, because it's you know for for the for the people who grew up in these community, they see this as a you know sort of a it a way sort of erasing their because because like I said, this is where the intergenerational memory you can see the dynamics, right? The the Taiwan-born Mainlanders, although their parents trying to give, you know, all these memories to them about their hometowns and, and, and to a certain degree they accept that memory and they thought themselves being uh, you know, coming from Shandong province in China as a Shandong person. But in actuality, they grew up in Taiwan, in these villages, and they have a lot of childhood memory in these villages, right? So when governments start knocking down these villages, they they want some sort of preservation, because right? they don't want their past on the island to be sort of erased. And then this process just intensified after democratization, because it's now the second and the third generation mainlander will be like, yeah, so so for so so they're into the history and the preservation of military family villages. If you come to Taiwan right now, you see that in almost all major cities, there are usually one or even several of these, these like former military family villages that are converted to museums. There are tourist sites. There are tourist sites. The biggest one is right, right beside the building one oh the, the the landmark building one oh one Taipei one oh one. It was called the Sisinan Village. That's the biggest the, and the most famous one. And that one's right beside the landmark building of Taipei today. But all throughout Liana, you have a lot. And and the reason why I said that there's a transformation, you know, moving on to this, the, the, the memory of 1949 as displacement is that although the old soldier memory of a, or the stories of old soldier and the stories of military family village or were, are already, were already flowing publicly. They were. They became part of this larger discussion of the 1949 trauma because of democratization, because of the going back to China experience, because of coming back to Taiwan and feeling being displaced again as a person, right? being traumatized and being displaced, of of trying to find a belonging again, uh, and they step on. Um, the, mili- the, the military uh, family village preservation thing, they step on the narratives of, of the old soldiers because these com- two types of communities would not have existed if not for the original 1949. So this is where everything comes together. And this is why I said that, you know, if you look at this this way, the correct way to read why they're producing the 1949 memory after democratization. And it was really the second and the Taiwan-born generation that actually producing this memory is because they want to be Taiwanese. They want to become part of Taiwan. Now, they can still, you know, have more favorable views 
to unify with with China. I mean, that's that remains to be, and they could have, you know, favorable view of of Chiang Kai Shek, select uh, Chiang Ching Guo's legacy, and you know, may, more favorable view of the uh, the past authoritarian period, right? But there's, but one thing that's that that's I think it's beyond doubt. It's their, it's their identity. You know, Taiwan is something that they will they will identify to. Otherwise, they won't produce this the this 1949 memory. In fact, the, the production of 1949 memory, the the way in which they tell it, right, and its connection to uh, an old soldiers and 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 military family village is to say that we are also Taiwanese. We we were born here. We just have a different history compared to other Taiwanese. And you know what? We're not colonizers. If you want us to call us colonizer, that's your perspective. But from our perspective, we are parents and grandparents who are, were refugees from, like you were migrants, you know, like the a majority of Taiwanese were migrants from China. We just moved here at a different time. We have as much as a stake and as much as right to be in this place, you know, just like you. We're part of the new imagined community of pro-liberal post-liberalization Taiwan. And I think that's that at the end of the day is why you know, the descendants of the original migrants are producing this memory at this time. In his conclusion, Dominic reveals that he was conflicted about taking on this project because he himself is a member of the native-born Chinese population in Taiwan. Through his research, he discovered the details of how his own relatives suffered at the hands of the nationalist government. His initial interest was to better understand how mainlander Chinese refugees could fail to recognize the suffering they had inflicted upon the native-born Chinese in Taiwan. One of the initial goals was to really find out to understand why, because I've seen a lot of these traumatic narratives and self-portrayal as, as victims of the Civil War. I, I just really want to understand how could a group of people being so blind, like even after democratization with all the information coming out, so blind to the fact that, you know, collectively as a group, they sort of rule over at this place, the local Taiwanese, if not politically, at least socially and culturally, right? And there's there's this sense of historical injustice. And I was for a period of time pretty indignant then I really went into the research. I try to I do a lot of interviews first, but then then I this is followed by you know reading a huge amount of oral history because there were really a lot. And then you go into the the, the archival historical uh, research itself and trying to you know in fact the reason why I got into archival research in the first place is I want to basically check upon facts. I know you know I kind of know back then the memory people's memory is kind of like you know not very reliable they will tell you certain things they want they will tell you the things that they want to tell you now right and that 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 you remember now but they'll forget a whole bunch of things especially for people who want to basically cover up their tracks right so but then this 
all of this turns into some kind of, I mean, when it really becomes like, you know, there comes to a point that I realized that this is real trauma. This is what we're talking about here. It's not a group of people trying to cover up their tracks. If you, you know, sort of look at the, the kind of, you know, experience that they went through coming here, you kind of look at their longing for home, which is all real. They're not really trying to make all of this up. And you put yourself in those circumstances. You'll be like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would see that, you know, it's kind of difficult for them to imagine that their own, their own displacement also displaces other people. Through his research on the memories of mainlander refugees and their descendants, Dominic was able to overcome some of the preconceptions, pain, and resentment from his own family's past. Dedicating his book to his family and the people of Taiwan, Dominic hopes that his scholarship might foster a greater degree of understanding and empathy between communities still at odds over the past. I am not saying that it's it's an easy process. Right? I mean, this process, you know, because I am just a, a single person. Right? I've been through this journey. It's a really hard journey. And I write this book the way the way I've written. The, you know, the, the way in which I've written is to, of course, you know, first of all, I, I said in the, the, you know, dedication of the book, this is for my family and the people in Taiwan. You know, for them to, to you know, people of my background to, to read this and just to see, hey, you know what, these are, um, I know you don't like the mainlanders, I know you've been unfairly treated, and you were unfairly, like your predecessor were really unfairly treated, right? But this is why they they can't, they can't think of this, it's very difficult for them to think about it. And we need a, you know, and, and for the, a mainlander person to read this. It will be kind of like oh, so if if he or she can get the message, it'll be like oh, so that all the stuff I that I know about my community, it was kind of selected through this kind of process, and of course, you know, I still feel the residual effect of this traumatization, and I, I mean, but this is this is there is such a convoluted history behind where we got to this point, and and so it is something really to think about. Since the 1950s, mainlander refugees have been using their memory work to maintain ties to their ancestral homes and to forge new connections to Taiwan. In contrast to the Western understanding of trauma as a singular event affecting the individual, in Taiwan, we see how a particular community experienced multiple traumas. We see how memory was never lost or need of repair. In Taiwan, it was the mainlander community that drew selectively from the past to maintain or build new connections to home. The need and the possibility of telling the story of the Great Exodus only came in the 1980s, 40 years after the original experience. It was a story told not by the first generation, but by their children and grandchildren as a means of establishing their own roots in Taiwan. Understanding this story and the decades of memory work preceding it could be a means of mitigating hostilities and bridging the divide between long warring communities in Taiwan. I would like to thank Dominic for so generously sharing his time with me, especially as our interview took place 
with a significant time difference while he was on his research sabbatical in Taipei. I would also like to thank Dominic for sharing a number of his photos, which I have featured on the podcast Instagram, Twitter, Facebook pages, and website. Next month, we turn to the memory of Stalin. I talk with Todd Nelson about how Stalin's memory was rehabilitated during the Putin years. The militarism we see in Russia today is in no small way due to the selective remembering of Stalin. Please review us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter or Instagram for updates. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Realms of Memory.